We're going to be learning the Hamedrish Vahamasa and Parshas Vayetze. The Torah begins with the scene of Yaakov's dream that he sees the angels going up and down the ladder. So the Medrish makes a few strange comments on this story. First of all, it says, Divrei Chalomos Lomalin Velomoridin, that dreams are irrelevant, they don't matter, which seems strange because the Torah records this dream. Then it gives a mushal, an analogy, to Aben Melachim Hamutal Barisa, a baby prince that's in a baby basket and there's flies buzzing around biting at him as soon as the nursemaid starts to nurse him the flies fly away so this is also a very strange metaphor. And then the Medrash says, Yaakov saw the angel of Edom go up 80 rungs and then come down. And he saw the angel of Greece go up 100 rungs and then come down. So Amar Yaakov, Afani, Shani Ole, Ani So Yaakov thought to himself, I'll also go up the ladder and then come down like these other angels that represent other nations. So Hashem told him they can go up and down, but you, once you go up, you're not going to go down. So all of this requires explanation. And then the Torah continues. Hashem says, I'm going to be with you, Yaakov. But then Yaakov wakes up and he makes a vow, if Hashem will be with me. So this seems very strange. Hashem just told him that he's going to be with him. Why is Yaakov saying, if Hashem is going to be with me? So Da'amedr Shvamas is going to explain this. He begins with Psukim in Malachi from where he ended off the last drusha in Parshas Toldos. In Toldos, he discussed the first chapter of Malachi, and now he turns to the second chapter of Malachi. Here, the Navi, who again, according to one view in the Gemara, is Ezra, turns to the Kohanim, and he gives them a very passionate speech that the Jewish people have a special role in the world, and they are denying that. So the Hamedrash Vamas is going to explain some elements of the point that he's trying to make. And he says that there are two elements to the belief that the Jewish people have. One is a general belief in God, that there is a God who created and sustains the world. And the second is the more specific belief that that God is the God of the Jewish people. He's specifically connected to the Jewish people. Now, the first belief is fairly simple, says the Hamedrash Vahamaseh. Science and philosophy would lead you to conclude that there is a God who created the world, and he cares and sustains every human being, and anyone, regardless of who they are, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, any nation or any person who's being oppressed, that God of the world is going to defend them. So when Ezra wanted to tell the Jewish people who were being oppressed by the Babylonians that they were going to be saved, that things were going to get better, all he needed to tell them was that there is a God in the world. There was no need to explain that that God is specifically connected to the Jewish people because just the fact that there is a God in the world and he cares about every human being, so he was going to save and redeem the Jewish people. So that theoretically is all that Ezra needed to prove to the people at that time. But Ezra adds something else. He says that not only are the Jewish people one of the nations of the world, but God specifically has 
a relationship and cares with the Jewish people, they are his children. Now, in general, that's a good thing, but in this case, it actually leads to something negative because since the Jewish people sinned and Hashem had to punish them, so Hashem is upset about the fact that he was forced to cause pain to the Jewish people. So their having sinned and having caused Hashem to need to punish them is itself a form of a sin. And that's what Ezra is trying to tell them, that their distance from Hashem is itself a sin and it's going to lead to even more punishment. So that's the message that Ezra is trying to give them, that they better do the right thing so they don't get into this cycle where they sin and get punished, which is itself a sin, and that's going to be very bad. But then he asks, Adds another point over here. Brisi haisa ito hachaim vehashalom. He says that Hashem's covenant with the Jewish people used to be based on life and peace. So what is he adding? So that Medrash Vamasa explains that the way we know Hashem should not primarily be through his punishments. That would be a very sad situation if the only way we're able to discern Hashem's hand in the world is when he punishes us. It should primarily be for the opposite, for all the good and all the blessing that Hashem gives to us. So that's really the way to notice the hand of Hashem. So that's what Ezra's trying to tell them, that in the olden days, the Jews used to be able to see the presence of Hashem from Chaim and Shalom, from good things like peace and life. And he adds to this, that this inspired the people to have a fear of God, even these good things. So their fear was not rooted in fear of punishment, but it was rooted because Hashem was taking care of them and they were at peace, they had inner peace, so they were able to see the hand of Hashem and come to fear Him from the blessings that He was giving them. So how does one go about fearing Hashem because He's giving them peace and sustenance? That seems to be the opposite. We understand fearing someone because of punishment, but how is it that that they feared Hashem because of all these blessings. So the Amedrash Ramasa explains that there's a difference between what we would call in English fear versus reverence. Fear is of punishment or someone else's threatening strength as opposed to reverence, which is when someone recognizes that they're in the presence of someone greater than them. So that's the type of fear that the Jews had in the earlier days because they recognized the goodness of Hashem and the power of his presence, so to speak. So that inspired them to have reverence. So that's the first point that Ezra is making, that the real fear of God should come from the reverence of his goodness and not the fear of his punishment. Now, the second point, according to the Hamedrash Vahamasa, is a very contemporary point in his day and in ours. And according to the Hamedrash Vahamasa, what Ezra is addressing is reforming the halachas of Judaism. So he says that whenever people want to stop being observant, they always look for leaders, quote unquote, to reform and adjust halacha, and they're always able to find someone who's willing to do it for them. So that's what Ezra is criticizing. He says to the Kohanim, the leaders of the Jewish people, that in the olden days, it used to be Torah's emes haisa befihu. They used to promote a Torah of truth, but now they're willing to adjust and reform halacha because the people are asking them to do so. Now, the major halacha that Ezra fought for was against intermarriage. So again, 
this is a very contemporary read of this. In Ezra's day, many of the Jewish men in Israel had intermarried, mostly because there were not enough Jewish women. So when Ezra came to Israel, he had a big battle with them to get them to leave their non-Jewish wives and to marry Jewish women. So unbelievably, says Zahmedrash Vamasa, that's the argument that Malachi quotes. Halo av echad lekulanu, halo kel echad baranu. We all have one father. We were all created by one God. Madua nibagaid ish ba'achiv. Why should we betray each other? So basically, they're arguing what's the problem with intermarriage? Why can't a Jew marry a non Jew? We're all humans. We were all created by the same God. So why should we create these barriers to marriage when we're all one group of humanity? So the Navi responds to this very strongly. Bagda Yehuda v'to'eva nasisa b'Yisrael u'b'Yerushalayim. Yehuda has been treacherous. They have rebelled. And there's an abomination in Yisrael and Yerushalayim. Ki Yehuda kodesh Hashem asher ahev. Because Yehuda, the Jewish people, have profaned the holiness of Hashem that he loved. Uba'al bas el nechar. And they were intimate with a daughter of a foreign god. So the Navi responds very strongly that absolutely not. Even though we're all one group of humanity, we're all brothers, we were all created by God, but a Jew is not allowed to marry a non-Jew. And Rabbi Chesko Lipschitz puts this beautifully. He says, God forbid we Jews would never say that the pagan worshippers, the non-Jews, were created for nothing. It's the exact opposite. We believe that the chosen people, the Jewish people, could not have accomplished their mission without all the nations of the world. Because the Jews were created in order to perfect the world. But even so, the Jews are prohibited to intermarry with the non-Jews. And that's what the Medrash says, that there was a whole conversation between the Jews and the Navi. The Jews said to the Navi, weren't we all created by Hashem? Didn't he create the Jews and the non-Jews? So why can't we intermarry? So the Navi said, what is Hashem seeking except that everyone should come and connect with the children of Hashem? So the point of the Jews is to perfect the entire world, and that's exactly why they can't intermarry and assimilate. It's in order to accomplish their mission that they need to stay isolated in order to be able to bring everyone to them and not get assimilated. So the people immediately agreed with the Navi, but they were still upset because this was going to destroy many families. There were people who were married, who had children. There was going to be all sorts of fallout from the divorces between the intermarried couples. So that's what Malachi says, Ksos Dima as Mizbeach Hashem, that the tears were going to cover the Mizbeach, the tears from the people who were getting divorced. They said, why do we have to divorce the wife of our youth? Some of these people had been married for a long time. They had built families. This is my wife. She's my friend. She's the wife of my covenant. So the people were upset that they have to tear apart their marriages. Says the Navi, even so, Hashem insists on this. Hashem says that if the marriage is hated, meaning they weren't supposed to get married, 
married. So then they need to end the marriage. So this is obviously a very difficult thing for the people to hear because they did have families. They did have relationships with each other. So this was a very difficult decree. And the Navi is aware of that. But the point that he's trying to make is that there is the universal God who takes care of the whole world. But then God also has a relationship with the Jewish people. And even though the point of both of these elements is the same thing, it's the perfection of all humanity. So Judaism is a universal religion. We're looking for the elevation of all of humanity. But until that happens, so there is a special relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people in order for the Jewish people to be able to do that work. So that's the reason for this terribly difficult decree to divorce the intermarried couples in order for the Jews to be able to continue doing their work of elevating the entire world. So that's the comment that the Medrash makes that throughout the book of Malachi, Hashem is called Hashem Tzivakos, which is a universal name. It indicates that Hashem is the God of the whole world. But in this Pasuk, he's called Eloke Yisrael, the God of the Jewish people, because here he's functioning as the God of the Jewish people, protecting the integrity of the Jewish people so that they don't assimilate. And that's what the Medrash says, that Hashem said, don't use my name on divorce. In other words, in general, Hashem is a God of kindness and love. And of course, he promotes love and marriage between people. So God does not want to use his name in this situation where he's promoting divorce. But here he needs to do so under the function of Eloke Yisrael. That's the only way to protect the sanctity and the integrity of the Jewish people. So that's his reading of this second chapter of Malachi. Now, if we take this point that there's a distinction between how Hashem functions in a universal way versus his special relationship with the Jewish people. So if we apply that back to the story of Yaakov, that will help explain some of the questions that he asked earlier. Yaakov originally knew about the universal Hashem who defends the underdog, those who are being oppressed. He was familiar, of course, with that element of Hashem. So that he did not need to be taught about. But that form of relationship with Hashem is a universal relationship. Hashem takes care of every single person, whether they're a sinner or righteous, no matter who they are. But the special element that Hashem's connected with the Jewish people, with those who are righteous, so that Yaakov was not familiar with at the beginning of the story. And that's what he's trying to say to Hashem, that if Hashem will be with him when things get better. So at the beginning of the story, he's fleeing from Esav. He's in a very difficult situation. He has nothing. But now Yaakov is saying, if Hashem will be with him when things calm down, when he returns back to Eretz Yisrael, and now he's been successful, and now he has an estate and property and a family. If Hashem is with him at that point, so then he will come to see Hashem in the second, more elevated way as the God who gives him blessing, and then he'll have a special relationship with Hashem, 
out of reverence for the goodness of Hashem. So that's the point that Yaakov is trying to make at the beginning of the story. And that's the dream that he has. He sees this ladder from the earth to the heaven. So that immediately shows that there's a connection between Hashem and the earth. But that he already knows. Then he sees the angel of Edom and of Greece going up and coming down. So Yaakov says that symbolizes that Hashem takes care of the whole world. When they're in a difficult place, Hashem saves them, but they might go back to being in a difficult place. So Yaakov originally thought that he's in the same boat as the rest of the world, that he's going to go up and down, meaning Hashem will help him when he's in need, but otherwise he's not going to have a relationship with Hashem. Says Hashem, no, you're different. Once you come up, you're not going down because once I choose you and I show you that I'm there for you, so now you're going to have a special relationship with Hashem and that doesn't function like other nations that Hashem Hashem takes care of them when they're in need, but it's a special relationship that the Jews are the ones to carry the message of Hashem. So that's the moment when Hashem informs Yaakov about the special role that his descendants, the Jewish people, are going to be playing in the world, that they have this special relationship with Hashem and this special mission of the chosen people to elevate the rest of the world. So that's why he compares the Jews to the sand of the earth, because just like the sand lasts forever, even though people step all over it. So the Jews have the the same makeup that even if people are going to step all over them, they last forever. Vayikatz Yaakov, so Yaakov wakes up. So here the Hamedrish Ramasa suggests based on the Medrish, an unbelievable reading, it doesn't mean he woke up physically from his sleep. It means he woke up spiritually. The Torah says, Vayikatz Yaakov mishinaso, he woke up from his sleep and the Medrish says, mi mishnaso, from his study. In other words, he woke up up from his philosophy, which originally he had thought that he was going to be the same as everybody else. And now he realizes the special role that the Jews have. So Yaakov here has a spiritual awakening, not a physical awakening. So now he's been charged with his spiritual mission for him and his future descendants. So that explains why the Medrash belittles this dream. It says that you shouldn't pay attention to dreams because in fact, what Yaakov thought in his dream was incorrect. Yaakov thought that he was no different than anyone else in the world, but that was totally incorrect because Hashem taught him that he has a special role. So the first part of what Yaakov thought in that dream actually turned out to be irrelevant. And that also explains the mushal to the baby prince that has the flies buzzing around and the nursemaid comes and shoes them away. So that's the mushal of the Jewish people. They're like that little prince. They're surrounded by all sorts of flies that are trying to attack them. But the nursemaid, which is the metaphor for Hashem, steps in to protect them. So Hashem was now introducing to Yaakov that he is going to play that role in the life of the Jewish people. And that explains why Yaakov wakes up and he says, if Hashem is with me, then I will devote myself to Hashem. So Hashem had already told him that he's going to be with him. So Yaakov's not saying, if Hashem is with me, he means at the point when Hashem begins to interact with me in this special way over and above the rest of the world, so then I'm going to assume my special spiritual role in the world. 
So this is the Hamedrash Ramasa's reading of this story. It's the spiritual moment of awakening for Yaakov when he begins to understand and assume the special spiritual role that the Jewish people would play in the world. So this is another very beautiful insight from the Hamedrash Ramasa, giving broader insight into the universalism of Judaism and the role that the Jewish people play in that. Now, the halacha discussion focuses on the halacha of giving more than 20% to tzedakah. So, Meiser is giving 10%. One is allowed to give more than that, but not more than 20%. And the Gemara derives that from the Pasuk of Yaakov's vow, because he says, Kol aser Yaakov pledges to give double Meiser. So, that's 20%. So, the Gemara says that from here you see that one should not give more than a fifth to tzedakah. So Damedr Shamasa asks a question, how does the Gemara see that in this story? Because here Yaakov is making a vow that depending on what happens in the future, he's going to give a fifth of his property to tzedakah. So perhaps for a vow in the future, where the future is unclear, there a person should not be pledging more than a fifth. But in the moment, if the person is giving tzedakah and they realize that they can afford to give more than a fifth, maybe they are are allowed to do so. So Damerish Vamasa answers, there's a principle in Halacha that Amiraso Ligavoa Kim Siraso Lahedyot, pledging something to Hashem like Tzedakah or the Besamikdash is the equivalent of giving it. So by pledging it, it was the same as if Yaakov had actually given it, and still we see that he couldn't go more than a fifth. So that shows that even if someone is actually giving the tzedakah physically, they cannot give more than a fifth. Now, there is another question about Yaakov's vow, because it seems to be what's called an asmachta, where someone agrees to something, but they're not totally sure that it's going to happen. So here also, Yaakov is pledging the tzedakah, but he's not totally sure what's going to happen. So the Maharam answers again based on the same principle of Amirasul Gavok and Sirasul Hedyot that making a pledge to tzedakah is not asmachta because the moment of the pledge is as if it's already given over. So even if the person is not sure what the future brings, but at that moment it's as if they gave the tzedakah. So that's the answer of the Maharam. But there are those who disagree with the Maharam that there's no asmachta when it comes to tzedakah. So the Hamedrashvah. Massa suggests another answer to this question, which is that asmachta is only if only one side, one party is making a pledge. But if both sides, both parties are making pledges, so then even though they don't know the future and they can't be certain, that's not called asmachta. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, based on what he just explained in the drasha, that Hashem's message to Yaakov is that he is going to have a special relationship with Yaakov and his descendants. So it's not just Yaakov who's making a pledge in this case. He's responding to Hashem's original pledge. So both parties are making a pledge and that's why it's not an asmachta. So this is a very cute example where he uses his idea from the drasha to also answer a halachic question. In this case, it was not a one-sided pledge of Yaakov. It was a two-sided pledge based on his reading of the story that Hashem was now entering into a long-term relationship with Yaakov and his children. So now there's no problem of asmachta. So when Yaakov makes the pledge, it goes through. But still we see that the most Yaakov could have ever imagined pledge
alleging was a double miser, a fifth. So that's the proof of the Gemara that one is not allowed to give or pledge. Even if they're in the moment of giving, they cannot give more than a fifth of their property.